May the blessing of the Lord be upon you. This is the greatest privilege we have in all the world, you know, is to uh, assemble together on the Lord's Day and open the pages of sacred writ, inspired scripture, and to ask his presence to be with us and have the confidence that he is. He promised to be, and we know he is. And so we look forward this morning to our time together. We have been looking in, uh, in Daniel, the second chapter, for probably a couple of weeks now. We've touched on that, and I'll continue with that. I don't know for how long, but we'll continue on that because it leads us in different directions. So uh, I, let me read. Let me begin this morning by reading a couple of verses from the second chapter of Daniel. And then I have a graphic image I'll put up on the screen. We know that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream. He had a series of dreams, and he was troubled because he didn't understand, didn't know what the dream meant. He said that the dream had left him. He had forgotten portions of it. And we know how he summoned all the wise men of Babylon to uh, respond to this, and he basically required them to tell him what the dream was. They said it's impossible. For us to tell you, any, no one can really ask a person to tell you what the dream was. If you tell us what the dream, what dream you had, then we'll offer an interpretation. He knew they would offer an interpretation. He wanted to be sure that it wasn't just something that originated in their own mind. So he said, you tell me what the dream was, and then I'll know the interpretation is correct. Of course, we know that Daniel, this, uh, the penalty, of course, for not doing this was death, and Daniel was informed of this, and he came before the king, and in any event, after prayer and coming before the Lord, in a night vision, the Lord, uh, the Spirit of God, uh, revealed to Daniel what the dream was and the interpretation. This was powerful, absolutely powerful. Uh, the Christian church has always held Daniel to be one of the great prophets, even though in uh, Judaism he was not considered such, but the Christian church has always considered him to be such. Now, I'll not read all of that. I just want to come to verse 44 of the second chapter in verse 45. And Daniel now is communicating with, with Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and he says these words, Now in the days of those kings, and that's a phrase, in the days of those kings, that we'll be emphasizing from time to time. In the days of those kings. What days would those be? You'll have some Bibles, for example, the, the Amplified Bible actually um, offers an interpretation, I believe, of that, what that means. It doesn't just translate it, but it affords and offers an interpretation. It says in the days of those final ten kings or kingdoms. So the Amplified Bible assumes that this all is established at the very end of the age when there is um, existing in the world a divided kingdom or kingdoms that come and have origins from within that which was part of the Roman Empire. In any event, I want to say in the days of those kings, it's always been understood more expansively than that, and it has been understood over the uh, generations of the church as being in the days of those kingdoms that are being described here in those dreams. At some point in the time span of these kingdoms of men, then the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will this kingdom be left to another people. It will crush and bring to an end all of these kingdoms, all of these uh, kingdoms, natural kingdoms, kingdoms of men, will come to an end. 
and uh, will be crushed by this kingdom that the God of heaven will establish. Then it continues and says, this kingdom that the God of heaven will establish will endure forever. For just as you saw a stone cut out of a mountain, yet not by hand, supernaturally, without human agency of any kind, crush the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. Now the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. It's trustworthy. Let's put the graphic on the screen, and there are, I remember when we first began to teach on this passage of Scripture many years ago, I had to make my own diagrams. <laughs> made some of my own diagrams, but now diagrams, uh, you just basically uh, can find diagrams on just about any subject now. Some of them you have to be careful with because they may not express exactly what you want to say. This one I, I find rather neutral. This is the diagram or um, an idea of what the image may have looked like. What we want to say is that the head rep represents the Babylonian Empire, especially that of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II. So the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire, um, Nebuchadnezzar coming to the throne in this approximately 606, 605 B.C. In 538 B.C., the kingdom of Medo-Persia defeated Babylon and became the dominant world power at the time that, and by world power it means that power that triumphed or ruled over the area of Israel, the Middle East, that part of the world where the scripture, revelation of scripture uh, was given. Then in 533, this is represented by um, arms and chest of silver. Then in 333 B.C., represented by belly and thighs of brass or bronze, is the Grecian Empire, Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great. It comes into prominence about 333 B.C. and replaces basically as a dominant world power that of the Medes and the Persians. As the Medes and the Persians here had replaced that of Babylon here at the top. Then, and you'll find different years provided for this, depending upon your sources. Some refer to 79 B.C. when the Roman Empire actually became an empire. It existed for many, many hundreds of years. But it became an empire about 79 B.C. I would prefer 79, but it's a number. In any event, it's saying to us that the legs of iron representing, as we know, the Roman Empire, then replaced as a great world empire, presiding over that part of the Middle East, replaced that of the Grecian or Macedonian Empire. Now in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar would see a stone miraculously separated from a mountain, and it would strike the feet of the image. You notice uh, in the image the feet and the uh, ten toes are comprised of iron and potter's clay. So it's a mixture of iron and clay. And the idea conveyed in the dream and revelation to the king, the idea is that at the very end of the age, at the end of world empires of human empires, at the end of human empires, the idea is that there would be human empires that would be have elements of strength in them, but also elements of weakness.
There would be great strength, but compromised by the presence of weakness, that which does not really contribute to strength, but diminishes strength. And that there would be not just one, but there would be a plurality of empires. So the most uh, understand that the idea is the, that of empires existing at the end of the age that have their origins, political origins, geographical origins, in that which was part of the Roman Empire, because that of iron continues to exist even to the toes, but again mixed with miry or mixed with potter's clay. And at the time, the very end of the age, at the time, this stone, this miraculous stone, strikes the feet of the image, and when it strikes the feet of the image, the image just basically breaks and is crushed. It becomes like chaff on a summer threshing floor, and the wind carries it away, so no trace of it is found. So the idea is that all of these human kingdoms, kingdoms of man, these great world empires, will disappear to the point that nothing can be found of them anymore. They will then be replaced by the, king, by the kingdom that the God of heaven establishes, and the kingdom that the God of heaven establishes, now be, beginning as, as a stone, becomes a great mountain, and it fills the entire earth. And so this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. I might say that Nebuchadnezzar was... I believe to be about 34 years old, 35 years old at the time. Very young man. He was in the second year of his uh, rule over Babylon. There's a little bit of history in this that I won't get into. So Nebuchadnezzar was about 34, 35 years old at the time that this dream was given to him. And Daniel at this time was about 22, 21, 22 years old at the time. So both very young men, Daniel much younger, but I find this fascinating. You may find pictures of Nebuchadnezzar being this real old grizzled man, but not at this time, he wasn't. He was a very young man. Now how do we understand this? How do we understand all this? And does this refer only to the very end of the age? And when the scripture tells us the God of heaven will establish a kingdom, then has that kingdom already been established? Or does this just talk about that which will occur at the very end of the age? But is the kingdom of God already established? And if so, when was that kingdom established? And when it talks in the, when it presents to us the idea that the, that the stone or that it represents the kingdom of God, when that stone triumphs over and crushes and dominates that of the natural world orders, then is that a principle that has already been established? Is that something that's already intended to occur? And does that occur now? And is that occurring now? And did that occur at the time the Lord Jesus came in his first appearance in this world? Is that the features, the spiritual essence of what is described here? Was that manifested in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, we know that there's a future aspect to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And we know that all of the future revelation of the kingdom of God has not been manifested yet in the earth. But what I believe we need to see and look at very carefully and, and biblically and scripturally 
and intelligently is that there's more to this than just what will happen at the very end of the age. And that, in fact, what is intended to, to occur now and what has in, been intended for the last 2,000 years nearly actually culminates in events at the very end of the age and are essential to the culmination of all of this. That's what we want to look at. How do we understand this? And how will this take place? And we'll spend several weeks, I believe, we'll spend several weeks in this. I have another graphic image I'd like to show you before we move on this morning. And this is uh, something, again, we have looked at before. Do you remember we talked several years ago in a study of a hermeneutical circle? Hermeneutical circle. If I said to you this morning, what is homiletics? Well, you'd, tell, you'd answer me and say, homiletics basically is the study of um, the, the presentation of the gospel or the word of God or preaching, teaching. Homiletics is preaching and teaching. Presentation of the gospel. Uh, hermeneutics, on the other hand, is the doctrine of biblical interpretation. It's how the Bible is to be understood and how scripture is to be interpreted. Now, when it talks about a circle, you may remember that, <clears throat> as we talked about this before, represented by the whole, means the entirety of Scripture, all of the Scripture, all Scripture contained within the Bible, every part of the Bible, is to be understood by the individual parts of Scripture. So, in other words, to have the entirety of the message of the revelation of God's Word then we are informed of the, of the whole or the entirety by the parts, the individual parts of Scripture. And how do we know if the individual part of Scripture that we're looking at, if we have the right view of it? Well, we know we have the right view of an individual part, verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture, because we see that in the context of the whole of Scripture. In other words, the whole of Scripture must agree with the individual part of Scripture for that part to be right. And to have a view, an overview of the whole of Scripture, well, how do we arrive at that? By the sum total accumulation of all of the individual parts of Scripture. That for, has long been with us, the idea that it's a circle. Hermeneutics is a circle. So we'll put that, we'll put that diagram away. And I want to come with you this morning and Read a few verses, beginning in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. I believe it would be helpful for us this morning just to read several passages of Scripture, remembering that this morning is, we may have done an introduction to this, but this morning is going to be somewhat of an introduction again. And we may find that we will cover some of the same ground uh, several times. And I have been advised by insightful people that it's a good thing to do that. So we will do that. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 3. And I'm just going to read now several passages. And notice the common language that is found as they all refer to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, proclaiming in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what he said, Turn away from your sins. Let me pause. He said, turn away from your sins. What does that mean? Turn away from your sins. 
John the Baptist came and he said, his message was very direct. He said, basically, he said, if you are sinning, you know it. And if you are sinning, then turn away from it. Turn away from it. And somebody said, we sin, we sin, <laughs> we sin in thought, word, and deed every day, and we can't help ourselves because we've been born in sin and shapen in iniquity, and we have a defiled, sinful nature, and we can't do anything except sin. Well, if a person cannot do anything except sin, then why tell them to turn away from their sin? Why tell people to do something that they cannot do? Obviously, the Word of God and the revelation of God's Spirit is that you can turn away from things. We have rules in our society that um, would be pointless and senseless if we believed that people were incapable of obeying them. Why tell people to stop at stop signs, red lights? Why tell them to drive at a certain prescribed speed on the highways if they're incapable of doing that? We know they're capable of doing that. And we're capable of turning away from our sins. And John the Baptist came and he said, turn away from your sins. If you're sinning, stop sinning. Turn away from it. And then he said this. He said, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. Stop sinning and turn away from it. And then Jesus, a few verses, a few chapters later, Jesus in Matthew 4 says, from then on, Jesus began to proclaim, turn away from your sins. Jesus. He said, turn away from your sins. The kingdom of heaven is near. Then a few verses later in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Jesus was going throughout all the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. See, Daniel's, this vision back that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel, the second chapter, contemplates a kingdom that will be established in the days of those kings, at some point in those kings, the days of those kings or kingdoms. This will be established. Well, that kingdom has already been established. There are aspects to the manifestation of the kingdom in the earth that have not yet occurred. And we so look forward to them. But the part that we're going to look at more deeply in the next few weeks is the aspect of the manifestation of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven now and how that relates to the unfolding of events at the very end of the age. You say there's no bearing between them. There is. There is bearing between them. We're going to be very careful on this. And so Jesus went about in their synagogues and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. Here's, here's something fantastic. The kingdom of God, it's all good news. The kingdom of heaven is wonderful news. It's beautiful news. It's absolutely the best news there could possibly be. So this is what Jesus did. He went to their synagogues and he proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. And then, then listen to this. And healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. Why did he do that? To show the authority of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven over all the natural order. 
It has an authority over all the natural order. Here's a dear lady who is sick. She has a terrible illness for many, many years. And Jesus touches her, speaks the word of God to her, ministers deliverance to her, has authority to do that. And this authority is an aspect of the kingdom. You say the word government, that's fine to use the word government. The kingdom or the government of God has the authority over all the natural order. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus. And so he healed every kind of disease and sickness among the people because these diseases and these sicknesses among the people are not a result of the kingdom of God. Actually, in the presence of the kingdom of God and the manifestation of the king, of this kingdom that would never be destroyed, these are incompatible. These are consequences of the natural order. They have reasons. But the idea is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has authority over all of these things. And did not our Lord Jesus Christ manifest this authority over the natural order in everything that he did and said? Can you think of examples where he manifested his authority over fish and how you catch them and how many you catch? Did he manifest his authority over water and the scientific laws and rules and regulations with regards to water and what you may or may not do with regard to water? Can you think of several examples where he turned water into a wine, where he walked on water? Think how he took a fish and bread that was intended for one young lad's lunch and fed 5,000 people. All of this is to manifest the, king, the authority of the kingdom of God over the natural order. Then I'm, uh, I want to come with you to Matthew chapter 6, uh, just verses 9 and 10. Let me read these to you. Jesus is teaching his disciples about prayer. They ask him, teach us how to pray, and he says these words. Therefore pray in this way, our Father in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come. See, Jesus taught that we should pray with regard to the kingdom of God, that we should ask fervently, that we should pray, we should say this when we pray, our Father who is in heaven, Holy is your name. May your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Now here's something we're going to look at, and I believe this is very important. When you think of this prayer, may your kingdom come, do you think of the very end of the age, the kingdom of God, replacing that of natural uh, kingdoms? Yes, I think of that too. Wouldn't that be most marvelous and wonderful? We think of it as the millennial reign of Christ. The future aspect of the reign of Christ with regard to this earth. Scripture talks about a new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. It talks about the law of the Lord going forth and where the law of the Lord covers the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. But I want to come back and read this and think about this in a little bit different way. Our Father in heaven, holy 
is your name, your kingdom come. And I'm realizing very clearly this morning that before the kingdom of God would be manifested in the earth in this ultimate way, the kingdom of God must be manifested within the lives of individual people. And that was basically what was emphasized in the first appearing of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. As kingdom must be manifested in me. What does that mean? It means that he must be Lord. He must be the highest authority. He must be sovereign, sovereign in my life, in me. It means there must not be anything in me that is uh, alien to his kingdom, that resists his kingdom, that rejects his kingdom, or that prefers another kingdom to his kingdom. This is what has been taught for 2,000 years. But it has a direct bearing on the evolving or the um, fulfillment of events that will culminate in the return of Messiah. I know it does. It does. Absolutely it does. It has a bearing on it. And then Jesus said this, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we pray for. But again, it is that the will of God must be done in me as his will is done in heaven. And what does that mean? That means completely. That means completely. Is the will of God being done within our lives completely? When we are honest, could we say that there are parts of our lives and the way that we conduct ourselves and our behavior and in our thoughts and in our intentions and in our motivations that is inconsistent with the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. Not Christ-like. Not obedient to his kingdom. If we, become, if we become aware of that, then we could hear and should hear the voice of John the Baptist loudly saying to us, turn away from your sins because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is near. We're absolutely required to turn away from any known sin in our life. Anything that is inconsistent with the kingdom of God, we must, as soon as we become aware of it, we must turn away from it. If we do not, then we are a rebel and not a citizen of God's kingdom. See, we have to say it the way it is. That's the way it is. That's the revelation of Scripture. And all this about none of us being perfect, and I, I'm, I know that better than anyone else, that in ourselves, none of us is perfect. But that's not the revelation of Scripture. The revelation of Scripture is, I will be with you. I've made provision for you. I have a purpose for your life, but I require you to give your devotion and allegiance to my kingdom in your spirit and soul and mind and heart. That's what it is. And that's what Jesus told us we should pray for. I want to come to John's uh, gospel now, chapter 18. Just uh, before Pilate, and we know about uh, the appearance of our Lord Jesus before Pilate. It says in verse 33, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I am, a, uh, I am not a Jew, am I, Pilate replied, your own nation? And the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Listen to these words. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. Remember now the stone, miraculously cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, without hands, it says, and it smites the feet of the image. Represents a kingdom of God that will never be destroyed. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and I have come into the world for this. This is why I've come, Jesus said, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Well, then when I come to that where, where Jesus says, I've come into the world to testify to the truth, I've come to testify. I've come to make proclamation. Isn't that wonderful? I've come to, I have something to say, he said. I, I've come to say some things. And, and uh, everyone who has a heart for the truth listens to what I have come to say. See, if we have a heart for the truth, basically inside, where we want the truth more than anything, then we will be disposed and want to hear His voice. And the moment that we hear the truth that comes from Him, that originates with Him, our ears inside will just perk up and begin to listen. Well, then what did Jesus say? Let me read from the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to just basically read several verses from the Sermon on the Mount. And the emphasis we find are beginning in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And I'll just read through this. And then offer some comments at the, uh, at the end. Listen carefully to these words. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Do you know what that means? The poor in spirit? He said, Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The pure in heart, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now notice so far, these ten verses, notice so far what's happening is that everything that our Lord is speaking on this Sermon on the Mountain, all the people assemble around Him, and He says, I've come to give witness to the truth. Notice that everything that He's saying so far is directed entirely to the interior life of the hearers. He said nothing really so far that is essentially, I mean there's manifestations outwardly, but what he's saying is directed right to the interior of the person, right to the where people think and decide 
and the motivations. He's speaking to the heart. He's speaking to the spirit. Because this is where his government must be established. He continues in verse 11, You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and the idea now the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees was external. It was all about outside. It was all about what they looked like, what they sounded like, and what people thought of their appearance when they walked down the street. And the kind of praying they did openly for everyone to hear. And Jesus said, that's external. But if your righteousness does not exceed that, and basically he's always teaching internal righteousness. He's always teaching righteousness in the spirit, in the heart, in the mind. Inside. Righteousness inside. And when you have righteousness inside, you will then manifest that outside, and you'll be like a city set on a hill that can't be hid. And that's always been the purpose. That's always has been the purpose. And that's the purpose for this age as well. And so he said, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And if our righteousness is external and for people to see and is not of the heart, is not of the spirit, and is not right standing before God, and our heart is not pure before God, we will not see him. We'll not see him now, and we'll not see him later. Then he said these words. Now he, he went on much further than what I'll read this morning. Listen to these. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, do not kill. Whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Can you see the difference? One is an overt action. The other is an attitude of the spirit, of the heart, and of the mind. And Jesus came to speak directly to the attitude of the heart, the spirit, and the mind. 
Whoever says to his brother, fool, or thou fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says you moron will be subject to hell fire. The idea, again, is this attitude that expresses this kind of vitriolic language with regard to a brother. That's the idea of animosity, cutting, uh, sarcasm, bitter, angry words that come forth from the heart and show that the heart is bitter and angry and not in communion with the kingdom of God, not right before God. Jesus came to make the heart right before God so that we could come into his presence and enjoy ourselves there. <laughs> it's wonderful. In order for that to happen, the stone has to strike and dominate the natural order. One of the very first places that the stone and the spiritual parallel of this, one of the very first places that stone strikes, smites, is the carnal man, the natural man in every one of us. And the idea is to smite it, strike it, dominate it, triumph over it. We still are natural people. We will be natural people until we go to be with the Lord and leave this body. We will still be prone to the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of natural people we still will be prone to error and to transgression unless there is another law at work in our members that triumphs over that natural law. And this is the idea of the stone striking the natural order and dominating it. And I want to say that's going to happen on a global scale one day, but that's supposed to happen, supposed to happen, is intended to happen right now in you and me. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? See, we are in a moment in time now because we are uh, coming closer and closer and closer to the end of this age. So there is a preparation that is going on now, globally, I believe, among the Lord's people. And the Lord is opening up to us, his people everywhere. You know, this is where I want you to be. I borrow the phrase from Revelations, come up hither. <laughs> uh, maybe take it a little bit out of context. But the idea to be invited up to a level and to a place that we have not enjoyed until now. We're being called to do that. And there's a reason for that calling. Then Jesus said, if you are offering, listen to these words, if you are offering your gift on the altar, if you come to the temple and you offer a gift to God on the altar, and there, while you're there, worshiping God, you remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift in front of the altar. Don't offer it. Leave it in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother. It's the internal again. Before the external is the internal. Before the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the earth globally, there is the internal. Before the external, there's the internal. It's always that way. Before the second coming of the second advent of Messiah, there is the first advent of Messiah to prepare the way. To make it possible for the work of God to occur internally before the work of God is manifested globally and externally. It's always that way. So first go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Isn't it wonderful? Well, I'm not going to spend much more time. I want to just come to Matthew chapter 24. And I believe it will be good just to leave uh, ourselves on this thought. And then we'll come back to it as the Lord leads and as he gifts and qualifies us. Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to read verse 3, not all of this passage, but let me read verse 3 to establish a kind of a context for the questions that will be asked and the subsequent answers that will be given. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? Jesus had begun to talk to them about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the disciples said, When will these things happen? What is the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. What is the sign of the, all these things? And what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? Well, then a few verses later, coming down to verse 14, Jesus is speaking these words. He said, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed. The good news of the kingdom. Notice that. The good news of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, will be proclaimed into all the world as a testimony to all nations. Let me just go aside for a moment to the book of Acts. I won't read it this morning, but just remember together before we close. You remember how the Great Commission, this is a little earlier here, but then after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and there was the Great Commission given for going into all the world and proclaiming the gospel, making disciples of all nations. Then we read very clearly in Acts uh, how that Jesus said, but tarry, wait in the city of Jerusalem. Don't go yet. I want you to do these things. I want you to go. You must go and you must proclaim into all the world for a witness. But before you go, you must wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. The endowment of power from on high, as we know, is required to be able to proclaim this gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. I don't think it's too strong to say. Jesus was talking about proclaiming, let me read it again. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Now there's a certain kind of proclamation that Jesus is talking about. This wonderful news of the gospel must be proclaimed into all the world for a witness. But there has to be a preparation and an equipping for that kind of presentation. And we should ask the question, all of those who are proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God into the world now, is everyone equipped to do so? Are we equipped to do so? Have we been endued with power from on high to do so? Is it possible to do this without being endued with power from on high? Well, it's possible to do the external to do the external, to preach the sermons, to do the teaching, to graduate from the colleges, to do all of that, to go forth as missionary, well-intentioned. It's possible to do all those things, but not for the message to be, let me give you this big word, efficacious, effectual, powerful, able to penetrate to the division between soul and spirit, able to... Uh, Sharpened in such a way that it penetrates the dividing between soul and spirit. No one can do that unless and until endued with power from on high. 
How much of the gospel that's being proclaimed into all the world for a witness now is being done without that authority, without that power? I don't know. I would like to know. I don't know. My sense is that it's a very small. In other words, my sense is that the vast majority of the speaking and the teaching and all of this is in the absence of this authority. In the absence of this power. And that does not qualify. That does not qualify as a fulfillment of uh, Matthew 24 and verse 14. It does not. Because it just does not. Say, well, the gospel is being proclaimed. It's not just that the words are spoken. It's that they're spoken in the authority of the kingdom of God. Can we see this? This is what we need to see and understand. Not to criticize anyone, but to be aware, to be informed. So that we can come to a place ourselves that we need to come. I need to come to a different place. With due respect, you need to come to a different place. We all need to come to the fullness of this calling. That's what we need. And that's what the Spirit of God is saying to the church right now. Because he's saying this. He's saying, when this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, then the end will come. Then the end will come. Then the end of the age will come. Then the fulfillment of the dream that we saw where the kingdom of our the kingdom of God actually replaces all the kingdoms of men in the earth, that's when the mountain becomes or the stone becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Then the end will come. It seems uh, it seems this morning that it would be it would be premature to just uh, close without saying a few words about the love of God. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, if we're sinning, turn away from sin. You know, turn away. John the Baptist's message, turn away from sin. But there's a great emphasis in Scripture. It says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. It occurs to me this morning that there is no greater power in the universe than the power of love. It also occurs to me that a husband who loves his wife would never think of betraying her. And a wife who loves her husband would never think of unfaithfulness. It wouldn't even cross her mind for one second if she loves him. The greatest protection that we have in our relationships is to love. 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 And so when God comes with his kingdom and makes requirements on our life, we can't just say he makes requirements without saying he makes it with his wonderful love. Love. He loves us. And the ability, actually in the kingdom of God, the ability to walk faithfully with the Lord is really based on love. It is. It's based on love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, he said. Didn't he say that? It's all about love. Loving him. And we love him because he first (laughs) loved us. 
gave himself for us. It's just so wonderful. So I don't want uh, anything that we should say just to be said in kind of like the, without being enshrined, encompassed in the reality of the love of God. And to think that human beings then could just do these things in the absence of that? No, it's not the provision, is not that. The provision is that in the love of God, uh, we absolutely can walk faithfully in the way that we are required to walk before him. I want to, uh, I want to just pray with my eyes open. Can we pray? I just want to pray with my eyes open. And I just want to ask the Lord's richest blessing to be yours in every area of your life, every detail, every circumstance, every situation, known and unknown, that you would be guarded, surrounded by the love of God, be kept in perfect peace, tranquility. Remember that you are loved with a love that is indescribable. Your value and my value, we don't know how great it is. But it's not just to spend time here. It's to be spend time here in this earth, serve the Lord, and to be uh, fully what He has called and ordained that we should be. And that's what He's doing right now, is preparing and equipping us to do the very thing, do that very thing. That's what it is.